Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Lupus is a severe syndrome affecting more than 5 million people worldwide. Most are women, but men can carry the burden of more severe symptoms. The work of Professor Fabian Mackay, head of the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne, led to the development of the first new treatment for lupus in more than 50 years. Professor Mackay has also recently received a Lupus Research Alliance Award to explore a new therapeutic strategy for the treatment of the disease. Through this award, she and research partners will investigate depletion drug therapy together with the nutrition and gut microbiome methodology. It's the first time this approach has ever been taken. Professor Fabienne Mackay sat down to chat with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Tell us about your area of expertise. So my area of expertise is immunology, in other words, the study of the immune system, but most particularly in disease. So the disease I've been focusing on is is an autoimmune disease, and it's called lupus. And lupus is basically, to explain simply, it's a disease whereby the immune system, for whatever reason, is turning against a person. So an immune system is designed to fight infection, it's designed to fight cancer, but in patients with lupus, the immune system, for a very strange reason, is attacking the normal tissue of the patient. And which tissues in particular does it attack? So it may vary from patient to patient, but a very normal manifestation, a very common manifestation of lupus is, is red face, a form of a butterfly on the face, which is basically skin inflammation. But there can also be problem with the kidneys, problem with the lung, and occasionally problem with the brain as well, and various other organs and tissues in the body. How do we know we have lupus? Well, it's an interesting question because it takes a while to diagnose it simply because each patient is different and a lot of the symptoms may make the the practitioner think about something else and it will take a number of tests, in particular blood tests that will detect um, a form of antibodies called autoantibodies. And they are diagnostic markers that usually suggest the person is having an autoimmune disease. Then there is a further clinical assessment looking at different parameters of health or disease or symptoms. And depending on how many uh, symptoms the patient ticks, it may be characterized as lupus. So this is a disease where our own immune system attacks our body. Yeah. Is there a cure? Uh, no, there is no cure. Um, there are, in fact, there are not great treatments either. So let's say we're diagnosed with lupus. We've detected a certain antibody in a blood test that's at high levels, showing that the body is under inflammatory attack. Mm-hmm. What happens next? So I, I think clinicians will do a number of tests. As I said, they, they need to, to be sure they're dealing with the kind of disease such as lupus, and it takes a while to be sure. And, and should they be diagnostic that it is lupus, then practitioner will have to decide on the kind of treatment uh, is best. 
I want to jump to your success. You have created a lupus treatment, and we've not had lupus treatments for 60 years. So you've really broken open the whole treatment of this currently incurable disease. So I think uh, the one you're referring to relates to a discovery I've made, um, you know, nearly 20 years ago. I mean, time flies. Um, So really what I was looking at, I was looking at a family of natural factors that we all make. And this family is called the family of tumor necrosis factors. It was an important family because um, tumor necrosis factor, the first one that was discovered, or for short TNF, is very important for inflammation. In fact, there's been um, treatments developed for TNF, which block TNF, and they are given to patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for instance. So I was in the United States, and as you can imagine, because TNF was so successful, it was such an important factor in disease, um, many teams around the world were looking for the next TNF. And the way it happened is quite interesting. At the time, um, the human genome, in other words, all the genes in the humans, were not known. We only had bits of pieces of information about them. In other words, the whole human genome was not sequenced yet. So we only had partial information about partial genes in the human body. But those were listed in a computer. And people were going to that computer and fishing for anything that looks like, smells like TNF. And so it was a big race because everyone was after the next billion-dollar molecule, you know, the, the, the factor that's going to lead to the next blockbuster treatment. And so I was assigned a particular bits of DNA, and that bit of DNA was interesting because it appeared to correspond to a gene that's expressed a lot in the human spleen. And the reason why it was interesting, because my previous work in the United States led to a really important paper in the um, prestigious review Nature on the spleen. So the team in Boston told me, well, you know what? You're the spleen queen. You're working on this bit of DNA. And so I thought, okay, well, let's do that. So working with another team in Boston, we only had a bit. We needed the full length of that gene. So we work on that. We eventually got the full length. And then I work with a a great person in Switzerland, Pascal Schneider, and we collaborated together. And he got the full length of the human version. I got the full length of the mass version. And then I had a very simple idea. I knew that the original one called TNF is bad when you have too much of it. So I said to Pascal, you know what? I'm going to engineer a mass model which expresses too much of that new factor, which we call BAF, B-A-F-F. So well, let's see what happens when we have too much of that new factor. Is that as bad as TNF? Is it doing something different? Let's see. So we developed that model. And as the mass model aged, we figured they were not well. And then long story short, we did the whole pathology and we realized that these mice were developing a pathology that was very similar to lupus in humans. So you had the TNF gene that inspired you to look at the BAF molecule it makes. You engineered a mouse that made too much of it. You found the mouse model for lupus. What happened next? 
So this was published. I was arrested because I wasn't the only one doing this, but I was the only one who knew what he was doing. Everyone at the sequence, everyone knew what BAF was, and we were all competing for it. But I was the first one to tell the world what it did. So I was the first one to publish the article that demonstrated that having too much BAF is bad for you because it drives an autoimmune disease very similar to lupus. So this particular article was cited more than a thousand times. It's a blockbuster. It's been very, very highly cited. But that kicked off a race. So the industry out there, the pharmaceutical industry, realized that targeting BAF was, was a therapeutic target. We have to block it in patients with lupus. And so this happened, the whole story on BAF happens when I first came to Australia. So that's where I found what it did, why we had it in the first place. It's important, actually, in the first place. We need to have this factor because without it, we don't have a normal immune system. We won't have antibodies. But too much of it is bad because you're going to have lupus. Oh, right. So you can't really shut down the immune system because otherwise you'll get other diseases. That's right. Which is why it's so difficult to treat. That's right. So anyway, we, we knew that BAF was bad. And I collaborated uh, with clinicians in Australia, and we found that patients as well have high level of that factor BAF in the blood. And so that told us it was it was the right thing to do. We, we had to develop an inhibitor of this factor. So many did. Many companies started the race to develop uh, an inhibitor for BAF. And so um, it was done eventually by, by one of those companies, and we participated uh, as part of my previous employer in the United States. And in 2011, in March, uh, this new treatment called Belimumab was approved by the FDA in the United States to be commercialized and to treat patients with lupus. So it was the first treatment in over 50 years that actually uh, succeeded in a clinical trial. Before that, it's been a very sad story, and it continues to be a sad story of many, many different prototype treatments being tested in the clinic and not showing any efficacy in patients. Are some patients treated via diet? Um, look, that's still controversial because, again, like, you know, being a scientist and knowing a lot about, you know, clinical intervention, um, the power of diets at the moment, it's anecdotal. Uh, the real power of diet can only be demonstrated through a proper clinical trial. So with, you know, proper design, um, you know, standardized diet and to see really the benefit. But having said that, there are a number of studies, at least with animal models of disease, that are showing a benefit in having a certain type of diet. What type of diet is that? The type of diet that is really effective is what we call a high-fiber diet. So, you know, we hear that all the time when you read the magazines or listen to the TV or the radio that, you know, eating your greens is good for you, you know, less fat, less uh, less sugar, but more greens, more salad, more vegetables is good for your intestine, your gut and your health in general. So there's a bit of truth in that. But to really unravel that truth, we need to do a lot of research to understand the mechanism of action. You see, there's a lot of hype out there where we know that a good diet is going to change the kind of gut microbiota we live in. So what is microbiota? It's all the little bugs that lives in, in our intestine. And uh, for a long time, we knew they were there, but we never really paid attention to them. In fact, they're very important because they break down the food. 
and they break down the food into small species of um, metabolites. Those go into the bloodstream, and they have mostly beneficial effects in the blood and, and in tissues all over the body, especially if you have a good diet. If you have a bad diet, like a lot of meat, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, you can have bad metabolites, and those can be bad for your heart, for instance. But we're only at the beginning of understanding the bioactive nature of those metabolites. And unless we do this, we're not going to be able to treat people properly. What are some of the misconceptions about lupus? Does it get confused with other diseases and other treatments? It can be because people are not always 100% lupus. Some of them may have arthritis. They may have other manifestations. Like? Like um, inflammation of the salivary gland, which could be which is another disease called Sjogren. So, you know, some of them can have a mixed uh, presentation. Is it like celiacs? Uh, celiacs are slightly different. So celiac is related to the gut. and um, That's the gluten reaction. Yeah, so it's, reaction just, it's more to... of an yeah, allergic type reaction, although there's, there's a bit of component of immune reaction to the gut. Tell us about the prevalence of lupus. Um, it's actually quite prevalent. It's uh, it's a disease that is um, female dominant, so it's more frequent in women than than men. Uh, I think it's one in six hundred, about twenty thousand in Australia and five millions worldwide. But it's it's in, the incidence is increasing, so there's more and more patients developing this disease. And I've heard indigenous populations also. That's right. So it's actually um, the general populations may not know that. But Indigenous Australians are four to six times more likely to develop this disease than the general population. Tell me about Fabian, the young scientist. Where did it all start? Where was this passion for science? Actually, uh, my first passion wasn't for science at all. It's it's a long story, but um, when I was, let's say, I was probably 16, 17, um, I was always a good student. But my passion was around math and physics. And I, I come from France, but you can tell from the accent, I'm sure. So anyway, in, in my country, uh, there are specific um, schools that uh, train engineers. And they, it's a specific system in France they call Grandes Écoles. And I was always looking at becoming a mechanical engineer, developing fast trains and Airbus plane. So I was fascinated by the, you know, mechanical industry in France because we were quite good at it with the Germans and in Europe in particular. And then unfortunately, last year of um, high school, I became sick. So um, I had to stop for a few months and I was on and off school. It wasn't lupus, was it? No, (laughs) it wasn't lupus. So that put a sort of a break in in a particularly bad time, the last year when you're about to do, uh, it's called baccalaureate in France, which is a final degree in high school. So what I didn't expect, I was expecting to repeat that year and go again for, for the entry for those engineering school. But at the end of that year, I was feeling better and my parents said, well, why don't you go and do the baccalaureate? You won't get it, but you're going to repeat the last year. You'll, you'll get it the following year. So what I did a lot when I was sick is read a lot. And I didn't realize, uh, well, I, I was very much of a sponge and I, I remembered a lot of things. So when I went to the baccalaureate, I actually got it. So I wasn't expected to get it, but I did get it. The problem is, you see, my parents were happy for five minutes. We went to a restaurant that evening, and at dessert time, my mom said, but yeah, hang on, but where are you going now? 
And so I said to my parents, you know what? Maybe I should go to the Faculty of History, become an archaeologist, or maybe become a lecturer in history or an historian. And my parents were not too keen on that particular person because of job prospects were not great. And then the other alternative was medicine. And uh, so I had special consideration I could do medicine. So I decided, okay. Um, I wasn't sure about medicine because medicine meant um, after being sick, you know, going back to hospitals, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do. But I had to be somewhere. And my parents said, well, just do that. And, you know, you're still convalescing. And if something goes wrong, the faculty of medicine is right next to the hospital. <laughs> so they can cut you on the other side. And I said, okay, I'll do that for a year and see what I'm going to do. What I didn't expect is actually I really liked studying medicine. I really enjoyed it. I don't know what it is about it. I like discovering, maybe because of my own experience being sick. And um, I, I was fascinated by understanding pathology in particular, you know, why things go wrong. You know, this machine is so beautiful, so well done, so sophisticated, and yet why things go wrong, you know. So I was fascinated by that. And I think that was a trigger, I think. Personal journeys through being thick and, and then discovering uh, a passion for medicine in a way. But I still wasn't keen on becoming a doctor because of my particularly um, lack of appetite for a hospital environment. And so I thought I needed to do something different. And I was a bit concerned in France at the time. We're talking the early 80s. And, you know, the life of a doctor in France, you know, it's pretty, they're all concentrated in cities. You can live in a village. But in some ways, a lot of elderly people live in the village. So you'd be doing palliative medicine, you know, more or less. Not quite, but a lot of it. Not advancing medicine per se. Doing great things for the local population, which that part attracted me to be someone important who plays a big role in the life of these people. But not being able to make a difference, just using medicines that are just available, I wasn't satisfying. So I thought... I needed to do something different. And so I met with, uh, funny enough, uh, some of my lecturers. And they said, well, you can make a difference. You just have to do medical research. There you go. And I think that just did it for me. I said, yeah, I think I want to change. I don't like the treatment we're having. I was one beneficiary. I hated it. So I think if I've got to do something useful for mankind, that would be a new treatment, something much better. And you certainly have. You've created a treatment for lupus that suits quite a large subset of the lupus patients. Um, not all of them. And this is another problem with the disease. As I mentioned earlier, it's very heterogeneous. So the, the biggest barrier we have is trying to determine when you see a patient, will that patient respond or not to an expensive treatment? And we have no way at this stage to really guess whether that person will benefit from a particular treatment. I think there's a lot more work, and we're doing that in my lab, actually, I'm trying to understand the heterogeneity better and use that information to do what we call personalized medicine. In other words, better predict the kind of drugs or the kind of treatment that's going to work the best in a particular patient. Tell me about what's changed since you were a young scientist to your laboratories now. I used to love being hands-on on the bench doing my own experiment. I used to do a lot of them, being very efficient. Now um, you are trusting people to do those experiments for you. So it's kind of different. It's good too because you're mentoring young people and you're sharing your passion and, uh, and they're very enthusiastic, so that's good. But 
because I'm also very busy being ahead of school, I think perhaps there, there is a sometimes a time frustration, not having enough time to read, not having enough time to reflect about uh, the experiment or the kind of direction the research should take. I manage it's a lot of after hours sort of um, you know work because I still love it and I'm still passionate about it. But I think, uh, you know, as you become more and more senior, there's a lot of things that get in the way. Has big data made a difference to your area of research? Absolutely, actually. I was mentioning, you know, better understanding heterogeneity in patients with uh, lupus. That's big data. It's basically putting in a big computer every single bit of information you have per patient and has the computer to sort of create pattern and tell us, can you define subgroups out of all this mass of semi-disparate information you know, on every patient? Can you compute that hours and hours and hours and come back with something that looks like a stratification? That's exactly what we've done. And the computer says, yes, I can see things, actually, that can, I can put a group or percentage of certain groups, so I can stratify them a lot better. What advice do you give to your students? I think in terms of how to succeed and how to become a successful researcher, I think the main thing is to be passionate about this. This is a long journey being a scientist, and it's not an easy journey. Uh, you, you spend your time convincing the world that what you do is very important to get funding, so that's one way. But I think what makes you succeed is to be convinced that what you do is really fundamental, that the questions you ask are really important questions. Um, I said to my students, don't do minutia. No one's interested in the little details. You need to sit back and look at the mysteries of the world and the thing we still don't understand, and yet if we were, it would make such a difference for patients or for our understanding of the human body or nature for that matter. And I think always go for the big questions. Always be bold. I think blue sky, a bit of risk, is, uh, you know, I know it's uh, never something that students are comfortable to do, but I think that's where you find the most valuable Uh, new discoveries. You inspire your students by asking them to reflect on the bigger picture. Yeah. Who inspired you? I had many mentors along the way. I think my first mentor was um, a great researcher, really brilliant. Uh, His name is Jeff Browning. Um, He was my first uh, really significant mentor at Biogen um, in Boston. I think what I like about him, I'll tell you a funny story. That's how I managed to work on those big questions. I managed to lift my game in a way. I thought I was pretty good. You know, I did a good PhD in Switzerland. I had a very good mentor there, although he was very busy. You know, I was very proud of the papers I published, and I thought I was reasonably good. But when I went to Bajan, I realized that I wasn't so so good. So in the end... um, I remember Jeff saying to me, I was very proud of an idea I had one day. So I came to his office. I said, oh, Jeff, I think we should do this experiment because I think it'd be fantastic. And he looks at me and he say, wake me up, you know, when it becomes interesting. <laughs> so, uh, so I realized it wasn't bold enough. And so I spent time in the library and did more research and came back with something a bit more substantial and had a more more risky, more sophisticated, 
but boy, it would really get us a really interesting answer. So I went back with that, and then he was very happy. This is exactly what I wanted. Tell me, Fabienne, what has surprised you in your journey? What surprised me, surprises me and still surprises me today is the fact that the human body and nature still has a lot of secrets to tell. And I think, you know, I thought we've done a good job understanding the immune system in my case. I thought, you know, now we're into the minutia, there's not much more to discover. But when you realize the role of diet and the microbiome, that's a new dimension we completely missed. And now it's coming back to us, telling us, well, there's a whole story we didn't realize was there. And now it's just excitement all over again, finding out, is this layer working on top of all the layers we've already unraveled? And so how the two work together? So I think that's what fascinates me, is the fact that you think you know it all, And then there's always something that comes and surprises you, telling them, well, actually, you don't know a lot. You have a lot more to know. You're a very celebrated scientist. Tell us about your awards. Well, you know, a lot of my awards were, you know, uh, big grants from the National Health and Medical Research Council. It's a very important support. And it's been helping me, you know, in the uh, last 20 years I've been in Australia. So it's a very significant and particularly important um, form of support. Um, I've been recognized in a few awards. I had the Martin Lackman Award, named after a wonderful researcher in cancer who uh, unfortunately passed away way too young. And he was passionate about translating research into uh, a new treatment. And this award recognized his work that led to the development of a new therapy, or at least he's aiming to develop new therapies. Um, had a trophy from France, so the French government and the for, um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs recognized my contribution as an expert in research and education as well. So that was done. And the latest one is the Lupus Research Alliance uh, Distinguished Award. Um, I guess I've been in this field for, for many, many years, and, and I came uh, to New York, or I presented to the society in New York, a new project in collaborations with two brilliant scientists at Monash, actually, uh, Charles Mackay and um, Margaret Heaps. And the three together came uh, with a really interesting projects, and we all contribute something that will combine diet intervention and eliminations of harmful inflammatory cells together to really tackle lupus. So the University of Melbourne and Monash University? That's right. Tackling lupus. Yeah. Next time we hear about lupus and autoimmune diseases, what would you like us to think? I think I would love the public to realise that lupus is actually very prevalent, that uh, the therapies we have at the moment, even though I work towards one, is not serving everybody. It's not helping everybody. It helps some patients, but not all of them. And one thing that you may not know, and the general public may not know, but indigenous Australians are four to six times more afflicted by this disease than the general population. Are there clues that it's got to do with Western diet? It's it's still very early to tell. I think we need to do more studies on this, but the role of lifestyle, certainly lifestyle and the environment play a role. The genetic makeup of the individual play a role. So which one is more important? It, it's still too difficult to tell, and no, nobody knows really. 
But I think what's important to say and for the public to understand is um, in Australia, not many people working on this disease. I'm one of the rare ones, but a few others, but not many of us do that. And yet it's a significant burden uh, for the general Australian population and certainly our indigenous Australians. And yet we still have a lot to do to improve treatments and care of these patients. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the BAF inhibitor is the first new treatment in over 50 years. The only one too. So we haven't made any progress except this one. And this one, as I said, helps some people and helps well when it does. But there are many others out there who have no more new treatment than the one that's been given for over 50 years and they're not great. Professor, I feel like I'm holding you up and I better let you go back into the lab. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Professor Fabian Mackay, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you to Professor Fabian Mackay, Head of the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 11, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.